Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life, and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. On today's episode, we have Sean Conway. Sean was born in South Africa, or is it Zimbabwe, sorry? Zimbabwe, mate. I was Zimbabwe. born in Zimbabwe, yeah. Sorry, sorry, my bad. <laughs> um, I went to school in South Africa, and I grew up in South Africa, so yeah, you're forgiven. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as, as Sean just said, he, was, he went to school in South Africa and went all the way through to get his uh, equivalent to A-levels, and they were matriculars. Matriculation, yeah. Matriculation, um, which I've never heard of. That's really cool. But um, once you left school, you then on your website it said that you were uh, aspiring to be a natural geographic photographer. You moved into sort of doing the photography stuff. Um, and then at 30, you decided to sell your business and move on and go into the adventure ultra endurance sort of side of life. And that was you started doing a couple of things there wasn't it you were doing you cycled around britain was that that was your first sort of bit into so it? yeah lands end john o'groats was my first sort of ever endurance-esque type thing i would say yeah yeah um to which then you cycled around the world which i read your book and it was fascinating unfortunately you had a big accident and you couldn't go for the record that you were going for but um after was it three three weeks or a month you went you got back on the bike and you started going again yeah exactly that yeah so my route around the world record attempt which is nearly 10 years now in february um uh, 10 years ago well yeah didn't go to plan got run over in america carried on anyway for charity um because who gets two chances to cycle around the world used to be my stock line to that question until mark beaumont did it twice and then i was like what <laughs> you greedy, greedy so-and-so <laughs> and then you've subsequently done more and more of that since since then um you have the world record for the fastest uh, crossing of the european continent i had that for three weeks that record <laughs> did you? Uh, yeah. someone's already smashed it yeah so lee timmis and I knew he was going for a fully supported attempt and there's no differentiation between self-supported and fully supported in the, in Guinness, uh, Guinness's mind. Uh, and rightly so this is such a big gray area in the middle. Um, yeah. and so I knew he was going for it. So I actually purposefully 
had to bring my second attempt. So I failed the first attempt. Uh, so I went back and I had to bring my second attempt forward a bit just so that I would could finish before, before he, before he had a crack. And I think I finished, I think he may have even started to be honest, but when I, when I finished, um, but yeah, I mean, he was always going to smash, smash it, supported, supported yeah. anything's, you know, at least a third, oh, yeah, at least a, a third quicker than self-supported, I would say, at least. Yeah. Well, Mark Beaumont proved that with, uh, with his uh, 78 days and 14 hours around the world. Well, exactly. And that was almost exactly a third because the record before him was sort of at 100 and, 105, I think, um, yeah. 106 with, with Mike Hall uh his his unofficial ride so um yeah yeah so yeah if, if you, you really should be and on the europe ride i did it in 25 days leaded in like 17 which is you know about a, a, just under a third quicker anyway so uh yeah so he was always gonna smash it mm. um and so yeah, I, I had that record for three weeks, which is the shortest time I've ever had a record. Um, which I, I don't mind. I he actually did me a favor. I, I'm now forever going to be the fastest unsupported sort of cyclist across Europe because no one's going to bother breaking the unsupported record just for giggles without getting the Guinness record, you know. So yeah, well they That's might cool. do it. And please, if someone's up for it, just give me a shout. I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> give the best route. Yeah. And you've also authored um, a fair few books now, haven't you, as well? Seven books, but there's one we don't talk about. So six books. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't talk about the seventh. <laughs> it was actually the first. It was the first book, which okay. is it is a guidebook. It's outdated now. So we uh, it's sort of old, old news, not worth buying, everyone. You can find it in charity shops now. It's the only book I've ever seen in charity shops <laughs> that says that says something about it. <laughs> it says everything. <laughs> All right, brilliant. So, being born in Zimbabwe and then growing up in South Africa, um, I feel like that you you probably spent a hell of a lot of time in the outdoors. Um, so yeah, let's just start with what what sort of things got you going in the outdoors? What um, who interested you in being in the outdoors? So weirdly, so yeah, growing up in Africa, it is a very outdoorsy life. But weirdly, I didn't really have any sort of fascination with doing something in life, in that sort of career or work that was mm. purposefully outdoors. Like there was really, and, and weirdly now I'm 40 now. I'm looking back, I'm like, I don't know why, you know, I just, I'm so much happier and better as in myself and in my head and in my energy and everything. If I do stuff outside and I don't know why it just didn't, it just didn't cross my mind. I mean, when you do grow up in, in the bottom of Africa, when you're earning rands, you know, uh, it, it's, it's kind of, you don't really have the whole world you know sort of outside your doorstep you know opportunities aren't just sort of there like they are in the UK and I'm very passionate about the fact that living in Britain is is one of the best places in the world because you can pretty much do whatever you want here when it comes to sort of career fulfillment you can I mean people moan and complain a lot about how they you know there's a lot of 
a lot of underprivileged people, and, and there are, don't get me wrong, of course there are, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, no one's really dying of starvation in, yeah. in the UK. Um, again, I mean, <laughs> before I get cancelled, because that's the world we live in, of course <laughs> yeah. there's going to be some some people with some serious mental health issues and they could, you know, that's a whole different ball game. So if you yeah. forget people who have issues because of their mental health, because mm. that's everywhere. But if you take an abled, you know, person who's, who can, who's, you know, in their mind clear and ready to go, you know, you can do everything you ever want. There's, there's ways to be educated for free here pretty much yeah. even at university level paying back university loans is, is pretty pretty affordable you know you don't get that anywhere anywhere else in the world most of the world you come out of university with thousands hundreds of thousands of pounds dollars whatever worth of debt right yeah uh, and then and then once you finish your education here mm. you know there's just so many opportunities you know i i was one of my previous sponsors was a, a watch company that used to make watches with parts of Spitfires that crashed in World War II. <laughs> I mean, let's start a business. What's the most niche business we can think? I know, let's make watches out of crashed Spitfires. <laughs> you know, find another place in the world you can do that. Um, yeah. So there is opportunities here. And and and, and whereas in, in Africa, it was less so really. Mm. So I think if I just, if I was a kid and said, oh, I want to do something in the outdoors and make a living. Mm. I mean, there was wasn't many options you know i mean i grew up in an era when the you know professional sportsmen and women in south africa still had day jobs you yeah. know you know like really famous cricketers like john t rhodes he had his own fashion like uh warehouse clothing range thing like business he had a fashion business it wasn't just him promoting like he had his own warehouse and used to make clothes yeah. you know um so yeah the so maybe maybe that was part of it i couldn't just be whimsy with my ideas and dreams when mm. in reality it would have been near impossible to to survive on this planet which is food shelter warmth yeah uh to do those so so yeah so being outdoors we really i kind of was really didn't even cross my mind my mind was just sort of survival like right so I need to survive, which is why a lot of South, South Africans are quite entrepreneurial and, and a lot of Africans are entrepreneurial. A lot of third world country people, when you go and meet them, they're super entrepreneurial because you have to be, you know. Um, okay. And and I was just in that headspace. I just was from an early on. I was like, I need to I need to earn money mm-hmm. I need to to provide for my future self and family. Yeah. Um, and, and that was it for sort of well, I started making a living from photography when I was 14. Okay. Sort of walk, you know, I'd take my camera to the sports field on a Saturday, photograph, you know, all the kids. And, you know, I knew the kids that could afford it, right? So you photograph old Barry on the wing there because I knew he had a bit of money. So, <laughs> and then I'd put them out and then walk around the, the, the dining hall on the Monday or the Tuesday when I got the film, the photos developed. And I'd be like, yeah. So there were five rand a picture, which is in today's money is about 20p. Um, and sell the pictures to the kids around the dining hall, you know? Um, and it was great. Yeah, I did. I did well. I did well. You know, I was probably making probably 50 quid a month, you know, when I was 15, 16, I guess tons of cash, man, you know, (laughs) Uh, 
yeah exactly so uh, um yeah so i started earning money from photography early on and then that's that's sort of took me all the way until i was 30 really so 15 years i did it um yeah. and you know as i said early on there was this dream of sort of being a national geographic photographer mm. but i didn't really i sort of didn't really chase that dream it was mm. difficult to chase that dream from south africa um as a youngster uh i also i didn't really have any and this is when technology now i think plays a very important part in mm. inspiring people i think had i had had there been an instagram mm. and i've been following people like jimmy chin and all these amazing national geographic photographers maybe that would have like made me realize oh well this is what these guys are doing right i need to do this yeah because you know, all I was doing is really sort of just looking at magazines and just seeing the final product. I really wasn't seeing the process. And this, this is where technology at now, if you can filter through the crap and, and the fake and the sort of veneered and polished content, I think there is some genuine sort of useful ways we can use social media now yeah. and, and technology to, to inspire us. But that's, that's that's really interesting what you're saying. Uh, we'll get on to that bit uh, in a little bit. I just want to carry on with the the whole bit from your young younger years in South Africa. So it's it's really interesting because you know a British view of looking at South Africa is that it is just this big playground. There's there's you've got um, all of this area that you can go and run around in, and, and you've got these fantastic wild animals down there and things like that. So it's really interesting to hear your perspective that, you know, at the age of 14, you were taking pictures because you needed to sort of fill those Maslow hierarchy of needs. You needed money to keep a, keep food on the table and, and things like that. So it sort of detracts away from being able to just go run around and, and that sort of thing. Um, well, am, I right, am I right in saying that, or am I wrong? Do 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 say. Well, South Africa is interesting. Sort of, you are free, freer mm -hmm. in a way, but you're also not because of, well, for lots of things. So, one, I couldn't just go run around anywhere because a I was at boarding school, yeah, for the whole year. Um, and yes, our boarding school was pretty amazing. Like it was a farm school and it had its own little sort of game reserve thing with some little deer and South African equivalent of deer. Yeah. Um, uh, so you could go out and, and sort of run barefooted in the middle of nowhere. But when I went home, I couldn't because there's lions and elephants. So I couldn't just sort of go out my garden, you know, even leaving the garden, you just, we just didn't do because you never knew if there was a leopard or a hyena or a buffalo or something so you know you always had to go with dad so that was one yeah. um and if you didn't live in a game reserve you know the crime was bad you know mm. you you would unfortunately i mean it wasn't that common but it was common enough for you to be worried where people got murdered for their bicycle you know like yeah. a, a kid you know you get like 12 year old kids getting murdered for their bike and it's just like well that's bad so you do kind of live in this very gated community style place you know in south mm. africa a lot if you don't live like we did like we lived in the game reserve so that was fine yes if you in certain parts of south africa when you're out on the farms and if you're a farm owner you have more freedom but certainly if you live in a small village um generally you would quite often have to have you know an adult with you as a kid 
not always you know you'd maybe be able to play on the street outside your house and and that sort of thing but it, it was always a worry as you know i even you know i speak to my dad now I'm, I'm busy writing a book about the three decades up to me selling my photography business at 30 and naught to 10 is me being this kid in africa and, and the challenges of raising a parent of, of raising a kid as a parent so i've been speaking to my parents about this a lot actually about you know were, how much freedom did we have to sort of just go out and, and live a free life and yeah there was certain freedoms but as, I, as I just said a lot of it you just couldn't because of crime because of wild animals <laughs> you know there's always something trying to kill you <laughs> um so and then and then at school you know I was just in this brain headspace of right I need to I need to make a living you know, I, I wasn't particularly intellectually gifted um, in my school. It turns out, annoyingly, I, I and I, I really, I, this is something I want to do a lot of, in, do a lot of uh, research into one day, is it turns out I'm actually not that stupid. I just went to a very clever school, right. which is really interesting because I came out of that school thinking I was thick as pig shit, mm. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> uh, and then I'm like, oh man, I'm really done. So I better do something with my hands or, or, you know, photography became my, my avenue to think, well, if I, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to do anything else with my life. So I better, you know, do something that I can do. And I know I can press a camera sh shutter and the end result's pretty good. Mm. Uh, let me do that. Um, but it turns out actually, I'm actually probably above average in intelligence. Uh, I'm not very clever. Don't get me wrong. Uh, from an, a sort of an intellectual studying yeah, you know, uh, yeah all that yeah. sort of stuff uh however i'm a lot i'm a lot further down that track or up that ladder than i thought i was mm. um just because all my peers were just geniuses so yeah i sort of i think the book i'm going to write about it um and it won't be based on me it'll be me researching other people you know, sort of called the stupid genius, you know, who is, because there's got to be loads of stupid geniuses who just, you know, the people who don't get into Harvard are still geniuses, <laughs> but, yeah. but they probably don't feel it because in amongst their peers, they're, they're, they're sort of, and, and how does that manifest itself? So anyway, I, this sort of this, this fuel in my belly to make a living as a photographer mm. sort of, you know, really was quite early on, just like fired. It was just fire. I just needed to make money, and I think that was that was it. There was unfortunately there was very little sort of room in my thinking for for being creative and doing jobs and photography gigs that I wanted to do that maybe didn't pay as well, and that was my biggest mistake in the end. Big mistake, massive mistake. Yeah, um, because had I had I recognized my bad decisions earlier on, maybe sort of, I would say early twenties, mid twenties, mm -hmm. I could have corrected them. And then by now, maybe I could have been the new Jimmy Chin, you know, with an yeah. Oscar to my name. I probably could have, you know, I, oh, of course I could have, if I had, there's a bit of luck involved in anything artistic and creative, um, but you create your own luck. Um, you know, I would have still had the time to do that. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was just yeah, many bad mistakes, stupid 
made silly decisions. Um, but, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it or couldn't have done it any other way up until my mid-20s anyway. So the, from 15 to mid-20s when you're still learning life and trying new things and you're sort of all of a sudden independent and you've got to earn money and buy toilet paper. I remember that that realisation once. I was like, what? I've got to waste money that I've worked hard for to buy bog roll? Like, <laughs> this, I usually just steal it from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, yeah. it, it's fa- it's fascinating listening to you talk about sort of <laughs> growing up in 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 the, the that area in South Africa and Zimbabwe and and you know can't walk outside because you might get jumped on by a leopard or something like that. It's um, well, leopards you can fight off to be honest. Mo- big leopards only sixty kgs, and unless it right. really grabs you by the throat, leopards attack you from behind mostly, and they grab the back of your head. But if you cle- if you a big, a big adult can usually wrestle off a leopard, Fair uh, enough. like a, a hippo and a bu- a hippo and a buffalo. Oh, you know, then, then you're in trouble, really. But yeah, <laughs> I've grown up in the UK, so none of this has ever sort of jumped into my mind that you know, walking out of your your garden and you could either be yeah, um, someone mug you for your bike or you know or getting attacked by a wild animal it's um yeah it's something it's something that um i'm just sitting here and processing and thinking god yeah you're right geez <laughs> so um, it's amazing how quickly you become sort of desensitized to it though and you pick up I, signs you know if there's a leopard around all the birds stop chirping you know right. so and stuff like that so well, it's, or they was, chirp a lot to warn you depending what birds they are <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, was, I was just thinking, um, I, I, I was a husky sledding guide in the Arctic and um, we would take guests out and they would always be wanting to look at the Northern Lights and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, every time there was a, a Northern Lights show, you, you'd have to go, you'd go and tell the guests, guys, there's Northern Lights outside. And they were like, oh, so um, I'll just leave you guys out here. I'm going to go in and, and cook dinner or something like that. Um, because it's just these sort of white wisps and they're all really excited getting the uh, cameras out and things um, and uh, yeah you just get desensitized that's where that's where I'm going with that you just get desensitized to it all yeah. and they were like oh yeah. so you're not going to come and join us it's like no no it's okay and, the, and then they come in and they go you've seen some really good northern light shows haven't you it's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> wrong answer mate it's like it's like every every <laughs> carpet fitter we've ever used. He's like, oh, I've got this carpet in my house. <laughs> you should have said, oh, these are the best all the lights I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, we won't stop. I won't keep talking about my feelings as a guide to be excited about Northern Lights. <laughs> so, so moving moving on, and so you said into your early twenties. When did you? So did emigrate from South Africa and, and, and uh, come up to, I assume it was South Africa up to uh, the UK. And that's when you sort of started doing the photography stuff here. Yeah, so I did. So after high school, I did two years at college mm-hmm. in photography, doing a sort of a diploma, I guess it was in the end, um, in photography. So I did that and I then thought you know earning pounds my family's english and irish so i've got an irish passport my and so from my dad's side my mom's side's english so i was just sort of coming to explore where my f- 
family heritage was from, do a year of traveling. That was the idea. Be in the center of the map. You know, mm. for my whole life, I was at the bottom of the map. I just was like, well, I wonder what it's like living in the middle of the map, you know? Mm. Um, so, and then just came to the UK with a hundred pounds in my wallet, landed up in a salad making factory in Ely in Cambridgeshire, pre, pre-cutting all the lettuces and carrots and whatnot to go in your pre-mixed salad bags you know that you get um so did that for five pound 70 an hour or whatever it was um and it was great it's just part of traveling right you know you mm. just didn't think anything of it moved to london started working in a photo lab and and yeah it just kind of it kind of just got out of hand like just the years rolled on mm. and i just started you know getting more photography jobs and doing less days in the lab. And it took me six years to go from six days a week. So I used to work Monday to Saturday off on Sunday, uh, all the way down to, to one day a week. Uh, that took six years. Um, and yeah, it was just, but again, I I sort of, and this is where I kick myself. I just didn't really have a clear vision. Mm. And I think that's partly my personality. Even now, you know, people say, you know, where do you want to be in 10 years time? I'm like, I don't really know. And I kind of almost don't want to know. I kind of like the fact that life just comes up at me and I deal with it when it happens. Yeah. Caroline, my wife hates it because I'm just so last minute with everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I guess, you know, I become resourceful through, through doing these various challenges and I, and I thrive on that. I'm a, I love deadlines. You know, mm. my, on all my books the publishers would be like oh the deadlines you know the first of january which is nine months away and i'll probably only start writing the book in beginning of december (laughs) you know i love it i love just sort of having those tight deadlines i thrive my brain sort of goes into this like sort of hyperdrive it's i sort of call it the monkey terrier i'm a monkey most of the time and i enjoy being a monkey Um, but every now and then i need to be a terrier but i can't be a terrier for too long otherwise I, I burn out. And I think if I have this sort of 10-year game plan and maybe I'll be in Terrier mode for too long, I'll burn out. But I do still believe in having a 10-year sort of goal and, and idea of possibly what you would like to have achieved. Um, and I didn't really do that in my 20s. I just sort of got stuck into sort of living you know, hand-to-mouth financially almost for most of that time. It was only really in the last year or two in the photography that I was starting to earn, you know, decent money um, doing school portrait photography. So that's what I landed up doing. That was my big mistake, starting a school portrait company, Soul Destroying. And um, yeah, so yeah, that's, so that's how I kind of landed up in the UK, really. And I mean, I also I started a business with a friend of mine who was British. Yeah. Uh, James Carnegie from he was from Jersey, and he him and I studied together in South Africa. He came over to South Africa to study um, because it was cheap, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think what 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 my I think the I think I was paying a thousand pounds a year for a one year course. That was it (laughs) for my studying. You know, so it was was very cheap to study in South Africa, Um, and. Yeah, so that's yeah, just kind of, just yeah, ha- living when you live hand to mouth, it is quite hard to dream about the future. Really, mm. you sort of think, well, if I earn more money next month, it'll buy me more freedom and more time to maybe do some of the stuff I want to do. 
but of course the busier you are the less time you have so so that, that that leads me on to the next question when you came to the uk obviously you're saying you work in six days a week and uh yeah did the outdoors sort of uh come into it at that point or were you, was it just really work focused yeah, and did yeah, you get absolutely. out much? I, I didn't own a pair of trainers for my entire 20s <clears throat> in fact the only thing i did do is when i was 20 so 28 i cycled mm. land's end john groats um and i remember that took 25 days and i remember getting back from that ride thinking this is the beginning of my epic life as a cyclist as going to do epic outdoor stuff uh and i put my bike in the shed and didn't look at it for another two years um that saying you know did i i think i did one hiking trip mm. uh you know we'd go yeah no no didn't join the gym wasn't the, yeah i really didn't know no active. i mean my my job was outdoorsy in a way photography even though i was doing studio-based school portraits mm. i was still not sort of indoors all day you know you're still carrying gear around and, I, and I, I got into music photography as well and i worked on the harry potter films for a bit that was quite fun so it was varied and and you know i wasn't stuck in a in an artificial indoor office all day so it's not like i was a complete slob uh and i wasn't overweight either i've never sort of been overweight so it's not the fact i was you know it's weirdly i i should have been i think if you'd if you'd sort of encapsulated a visual version of what I actually was is I should have been just a sort of a fat and healthy person. I just happened to don't, I just don't put on body weight that easily. Um, so it didn't show, which was probably my downfall. You know, maybe had I got a bit of a beer belly, I would have been like, whoa, 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 something needs to change. <laughs> uh, I had all the other signs, you know, insomnia, bad skin, you know, restlessness, demotivated, like I had all that other stuff. I just didn't show it when I looked in the mirror. Maybe that would have got my ass in gear a bit earlier had I, you know, gained a bit of weight. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm an individual who struggles with that sort of thing. So my, my Land's End John O'Groats attempt was was part, part and parcel of trying to drop my weight. I was 130 kg at the time. So it was, yeah. you know, got to got to get on so yeah interesting that you say that and so and then so you you cycled lands and genre groups obviously this was pre-beard days pre-beard days yeah, yeah. So my beard days started on the 18th of february 2012 so i'm coming up to my 10-year anniversary i have shaved it once hmm. no i've shaved my beard twice since the 18th of february 2012 once before I swam the length of Britain, uh, yeah. once after I swam the length of Britain for charity, um, and yeah, that's it. So, mm. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, fantastic sort of history of you know your your life in the outdoors, and not even sitting in an office, you're still sort of going out and about whilst you're doing your photography stuff. What was the impetus for? You know this whole you know you say for the last 10 years you've been doing all this outdoor stuff and just before we started recording you were saying that um you feel healthier mentally and physically now um what sort of started you on that on that road um to be an adventurer 
yeah i mean there was never a sort of a goal to be an adventurer in my head anyway um the the goal was truthfully is i was skint so i sold my business for a pound Mm -hmm. i was skint because i lived in london i had kind of even though i was earning good money i had quite big outgoings every month because you just you know you take loans for tellies and cars and whatnot right Mm -hmm. uh when you earn more money um so I, I didn't have any proper money to go traveling. And that's what I wanted to do. I sort of sort of went back to the drawing board and I said, right, I wanted to be this amazing National Geographic photographer. How do I do that? Well, I need to go traveling. Can't afford it, really. Uh, how can I get someone else to pay for me to go traveling? I thought, well, I could get a magazine to send me somewhere. But truthfully, I mean, I don't have no track record. You know, no one's going to send me anywhere. Uh I thought, well, maybe if I do some sort of world record in the world of travel, I'll get some sort of sponsorship. Uh, and that was the thinking. That was the thinking. So I just thought, well, I cycled Lands and John Gross. I kind of enjoyed that. That was a good experience. And I sort of feel there was something inside me that I felt, you know, and it was pure naivety, really. Uh, but I'm glad I had those feelings and went with them. I just felt that I could maybe be quite a good ultra cyclist i had nothing to back back myself up on it other than this dream and and passion to put in the hours because i figured like in sport especially in sports that aren't sort of super super sort of high-end as in popular where biology comes into account you know like the olympic rowers really and and track track and field people have biological advantages so you can i could train as hard as i want for as long as i want more than anyone else i'm never going to beat usain bolt on on the on the track right because he's biologically got an advantage over me but certainly in, in the world of ultra cycling i feel and i still feel this today there's so many other elements outside of your biology biological performance that make you good in it um which is why girls are at the moment smashing the world of ultra cycling, because it's not all about power and strength and that, you know, there's decision-making, there's strategy, there's sleep strategies, there's, you know, route planning. There's so many other things involved around it, which I all quite find quite fascinating and interesting as well. And I just thought, what if I put more time and energy and effort into all those sort of things and learn about them and take them all very seriously, then I could be a good ultra cyclist. So that's what I thought. Let me try and break an ultra cycling world record. And that was the round the world attempt I tried in, uh, yeah, 2012 now, yeah, 10 years ago. So, um, yeah, so that was the leap really. It was this sort of, I'm skint. I want to go traveling. How can I get someone else to pay for it basically? And then, yeah, that kind of just became my new job and I get classed as an adventurer and I don't correct people because people understand that, but actually really, uh, I'm probably a non-professional ultra endurance athlete is probably more what I am really. Yeah, That's fair enough. Um, Cause I suppose it's, it, it's the definitions of the words and, and, and that sort of thing, isn't it? That, um, that, that yeah, yeah. Those sorts yeah. Of I mean, I do struggle with the word adventurer and explorer. However, you need a word for it. It's, it's mm. got to be a word for it. And, 
so adventure and explorer those the words have been chosen in the dictionary so we've got to use them if you don't want to use them you've got to have another word for it i don't know that's not been invented yet yeah. <laughs> influencer certainly not that one <laughs> um so yeah which is why and, and also you know what are you i'm a non-professional ultra endurance athlete but yeah she's gonna need a super wide business card for that one um so <laughs> I just adventure. It's for me in my head. I cringe when people say that, but I don't correct them because you got to have a word for it. And I guess I'm kind of that. I guess <laughs> in a way. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm very lucky. It's a very cool job if you can pull it off. Definitely. Um, I'm sure you get lots of emails of people asking you about how to get sponsored to do those sorts of things and 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 all, and all of that. Um. So obviously you you've got you've got dreams and you you and I saw your was it four six eight challenge that you've just put out again? Four nine six, yeah. Four, four nine, nine six. six sorry, yeah. um, uh, that looks really cool. And obviously, you did that last year. Um, what's the sort of the um, thing that keeps you going and keeps these ideas popping up for you to go and be in the outdoors and do this sort of thing? Uh, I got tons of ideas. I have ideas every five five seconds. Um, mm. I have sort of two types of ideas that I focus on. Mm -hmm. I usually will have one big epic idea, mm. which will be a two-year project, usually. Uh, this one currently now is approaching four years because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but usually once every two years, in the early days, it was once every year, which was too much, I think. Um, once every two years, have this big, crazy, whoa, this is sort of like, oh my, wow, Sean, that's just bonkers. And then in the meantime, what I try and do is I try and do little projects that sort of kind of sort of all lend themselves towards this big project. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So at the moment, things like the 496 and running across Iceland and the national parks marathons, uh, they are all in the lead up to this other big epic that is top secret. Um, and I mean, it may still never happen. You know, COVID has really put a halt to this big project I'm doing, and and it may be that it'll never be possible, which is which is a shame. Um, so yeah, so in the meantime, I'm just thinking of all these little things to do because, well, I mean, the the unsexy answer is it's my job, <laughs> and people don't <laughs> want to hear that really, but I still have. I have two kids. Nursery fees are very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's partly it. It's it's definitely not my massive motivation. My biggest motivating factor at the moment is, and it's this. I I can't tell you how strong an image this is in my head. So I have mm. this recurring image and this feeling inside me, and it's it's my fuel. Where it's it's about fifteen years from now. Both my kids are teenagers. You know, they're, they're just an age now where maybe they're, they're starting to read my books. Um, there's a bit of swearing in a few of my books. So I may not let them read them too early. <laughs> or might have to just reprint them just for them. Um, so, you know, they're just starting to read my books and they're starting to suddenly realize, wow, geez, dad, you've done some cool stuff, mm. you know. And, and this vision I have and this feeling is I'm sitting in the chair next to the fire with a whiskey and my kids go blimmin' hell dad that is so cool wow you're the coolest dad in the world 
I want to go and do X, Y, Z. Yeah. And, and, in my, and, and I just this feeling I have is the best feeling in the whole world. Like, I just can't explain. It's like, I don't know. I've never won any. I don't gamble. I've never bought a lottery ticket. But I can imagine if you bought a lottery ticket and you're reading the notes, the, the numbers, and it comes out and you've won 10 grand or whatever. Um, I can imagine it's a similar feeling where you just have this overwhelming feeling of like, yes, it was all worth it. <laughs> all those freaking thousands of lottery tickets I bought before this one it's made it worth it. You know, all the hours of pain and misery that I've been through have been worth it. And, and that for me at the moment is my biggest sort of motivating factor. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, I, it's my job. I, I love it. It pays my mm. bills. And I'm super proud that I, I can, you know, buy a house 40 before I was able to buy a house, but I can, I bought a house. It's a bungalow in North Wales, uh, but it's a house and, um, and I can provide for my family and I, I get to write books about it. And that's super fulfilling. Mm. I really don't like all my, all my peers in the adventure world sort of, we have banter on, on, uh, on a WhatsApp group about how little book sales we've, we've had each month. And, uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's the running joke because adventure books really, you know, you'll get a boom at the beginning. You'll probably make more money selling your books at talks that you give and whatnot. But uh, it really, you don't do it to make money, right? Um, so, so I do it because I love it. But anyway, so we have this book. So I think you know, last year, last month, one of my books total sales income was like one pound fifty and then one of my other mates would be like oh mate you beat me by a pound <laughs> so it's uh yeah it's it's good fun it's good fun so anyway so i love writing the books and i really don't care about about selling them um i just want them as a as a memory you know like i was 40 39 when i had my first child and if if you look at the graph of you know how old people are having their first kids nowadays it's likely i might be i might be 80 before i have grandkids you know it's that and that's really not a crazy sort of thought you know i'm i was 39 my kids could easily be nearly 40 and they you know i've got two boys as well so they might be even a bit older so um you know my i'm not going to really have useful meaningful conversations with my grandkids um because a i'm hoping that i use my body to its full potentials that by the time i'm 80 i am wheelchair bound someone can push me around thank you very much uh and and two sadly we have alzheimer's in our family and and i'm very aware that that's probably on the cards for me if you know looking at the the history within my family it's not looking good so because of that, I'm going to write books for them, yeah. you know, which is why I'm writing these three books about the, f- the first three decades of my life, you know, not 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, this is why, you know, you know, I do what I do now. And that's the motivation to keep doing it. Uh, and when that when all else fails, uh, plan B is I'm going to become a wedding car driver. Right. Because. Uh, my wife has a wedding car company, so okay. I'm just at the moment, at the moment through COVID. Even though she had no weddings, we still had to go and. So I love my old classic cars anyway. I don't have any, but I have hers to play with. Um, right. <laughs> I'm a wedding car cleaner at the moment, mm-hmm. 
um, <laughs> and I'll soon be a wedding car driver. Uh, nice. So that's plan B. <laughs> Fair enough. Always got to have a plan B. Oh, that, that's that's really nice actually uh, to hear that that you know um, they're just memories for you, and, and it's not a case of it's a sell millions of books and make lots of money from it. It's a case of yeah, just being there and, and having them for posterity and for when you know you, you get older and your kids have kids and you know so on and so forth that yeah i mean yeah. don't get me wrong if someone if a million people would like to buy my books tomorrow i'm not going to complain about it <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know uh there's quite a nice school down the road that i can't afford i'd like to send my kids there um yeah. but you know what's also cool and actually i i only discovered this uh like a month ago mm-hmm. you you keep the rights to your books for 70 years after you die. So I like the fact that, you know, when my grandkids are, yeah. and that's going to be written into my will, that uh-huh. my grandkids are going to be at university and they're going to probably get like a hundred quid a month from granddad's <laughs> book sales <laughs> to buy themselves beer. And I'm like, that is brilliant. Oh, that's, <laughs> when I'm on my deathbed, that's going to make me chuckle that, you know, my future grandkids are going to have beer money for the next seven. And even their great, their kids as well. I reckon my great grandkids might even be able to uh, to get some beer money because of my book sales. Oh, um, fantastic! And I do I do like that. I I do like that a lot. And um, I got a long way to go. I mean, I think I I got seven books now. Um, and you know, in in ten years, you know, I've probably sold as many. Actually, I'm, I'm sort of lying. I have sold quite a few. <laughs> I was trying to sort of say that oh actually all the sales are, are are not as much as i've earned but no actually they're pretty good <laughs> people do like my books um but uh yeah there's just one or two that don't sell as well um yeah. but the yeah I, so i, I kind of like it it's kind of all these things and and also i have a terrible memory you know everyone says oh all you take is memories to the grave i'm like not in my family <laughs> like i'm gonna need photo albums and instagram and books to just remember what i did you know even now so my, one of my biggest regrets is i didn't write a book about my round britain triathlon because a three-part documentary was made on discovery channel and in my head i thought oh well it's all the memories are going to be encapsulated in this documentary so i won't bother writing the book and also it would have been my fourth book mm. about doing an adventure in britain <clears throat> and you, even though the adventures are different you're you do kind of come across similar things, you know, similar people say similar things to you in when you, you know, in a chippy and buying food and the same anecdotes rear up from different parts of the country. So I figured I'd be just sort of wasting my time. And I, it's my biggest regret because actually now I've forgotten most of that. You know, when I look at my cycle route, I'm like, I literally, and I was camping wild. So you'd think a wild camping experience you'd remember because it's very different to a hotel room, you know, because all hotel rooms are the same. But I genuinely can only, and there was 35 days of camping cycling, I think, or 32 or something. I can remember like three of them. Like really, is that bad? Like I don't remember my route. I don't remember where I slept. I don't remember anything. And, I, and, and so, yeah, my memory is pretty bad. I have a good memory from when I was a kid up until like the age of, until yeah even up to school yeah like junior school but after that 
like my sister can remember our phone number from when we were 10. I'm like, there's no chance. I can't even remember my postcode from the last house I lived in. It was only two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a terrible memory. So uh, yeah, got to write the books. Yeah. That, that's perfect. And that'll lead us on to the, the technology stuff you touched on earlier. Um, so obviously these days you, you have huge amounts of, uh, you obviously you, you have an Instagram account, you have um, tens of thousands of followers on that, and you've obviously got a website and things. Um, how, how have you seen it changed as since you've since you were at your you know secondary school taking pictures and and up till now, sort of technology wise, have you seen it change? Um, well, there's the obvious. I mean, I'm not going to sort of sort of tell people what they already know um you know we're all reliant on our phones now and that's that's good and bad uh i I think had i had instagram as i said when i was a teenager i think that would have helped me a lot had i been wise enough at that age not to believe fake news you know and it's a that's a real problem you know kids thinking their life should be a certain way because of what they see on social media when in fact it's not real and that is a genuine problem but i but i think with the right education uh and i think it's happening now i think the kids at school now are understanding a lot more about it um so you know hopefully i would have managed to battle my way through that minefield and found some really inspiring people to follow and that would have hopefully inspired me to follow a better path um I, i'm definitely not all about the sort of just quit your job and do what you love for one that doesn't suit everyone two we all need to earn money you know unless you want to until they bring back bartering where you can pay for a bus ticket with knitted socks you made um you're gonna you have to earn some money um, mm. you don't need as much as you think that's certainly true to mm-hmm. to find fulfillment but as i'm experiencing now nurseries are expensive Mm-hmm. uh and you know a few of my friends have teenage kids they eat a lot <laughs> you know <laughs> so you know so you need some money um but y- yeah you don't need as much as you think and I, I i wish i'd had i think technology would have helped me uh in in that way the positives of, of technology and social media because i could have gone and researched things you know, I grew up shooting film camera, you know, uh, I would sort of write notes in a little book about how I took the picture. But by the time I, film, I couldn't really afford lots of film. So it would take me about a month to use, uh, maybe about two weeks to use up a, a roll of 36 and then another week to get it developed. So, you know, by the time the pictures came back, it's been three weeks since I took the first frame on that film. And if it's, if I cocked it up, I'm like, shit, how did I, what do I, I need to do? Right. Okay. I mess it up. I think it was my exposure or it was my aperture or it was my shutter speed or it was my composition. Let me go back and redo it. And I go wait another three weeks to, to see the results on that one. Uh, unless I was feeling a bit flash, I could just shoot a whole roll of film. But um, so when digital came along, that certainly helped, you know, you could see your mistakes straight away and then work on it and you, you your growth, your improvement levels were so much quicker when digital photography came into came into things. Um, then fast forward into my new life. So I cycled Land's Enter John O'Groats pre-smartphones. 
Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I really loved it. I really loved it. And uh, I loved it because I felt I was freer doing it that way. Um, and I love maps and I love, I had, I had a full Lonely Planet book of Britain, which is huge. It's bigger than the Indian one. I had a camping guide book. I had an AA roadmap atlas. I had an actual book to read, like a paperback to read in the evenings. So I had low, I had like two, three kgs just of paper stuff. Um, and I kind of liked it. I really did like it. And, and I actually got asked this, you know, if you could choose that way or this way, which way would you go for? And it's difficult because obviously the romantic answer is, oh, I would definitely go back to the old school way. And I probably would. However, what the downside is from when I did Land's End, John O'Groats is I really don't have that many good photos because I took a big SLR camera. So it means if it was raining, I didn't take any pictures. It was cumbersome and the quality wasn't even that good. It was early digital days. So it was three megapixel crappy lens. You know, my phone couldn't take a camera. So I took another little point and shoot, which I didn't use as much. So I don't have that. I, I don't have a very good diary of it because I was doing a written diary. And if I was tired, I couldn't be asked. Whereas now I could just do everything on voice notes on my phone. You know, so the technology has really helped me sort of capture the story better, which in turn, for me, I can show my future grandkids and my kids when they're teenagers. Um, so that is a good side. And I think if I was if I had the choice of like one way or the other, I would probably choose the, the other way. I'd probably go back to the old school way because I inherently feel that that experience, was, I was freer in it. Because also you now, your friends and family, forget social media, forget, forget sharing it to, to, to strangers. Even if mm-hmm. you took that out of it, with technology, there's an expectation to keep in touch with people in your family. Yeah. Which is good, but it can also really change your your experience you know when i cycled lands and john groats it was sort of i had to like actually phone my parents when i had reception which was barely ever if yeah. i wanted there was facebook but i had to i had to go to a library log in onto a computer and then send my parents a facebook message um yeah. and yeah so there's you know you read these books about people going off for like four years without you know even writing their parents a letter type thing um so i think i would do it the old school way but i'd find a way of 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 telling my story better and committing to just to one format of content and you know maybe just being really honest about writing a journal and taking good pictures you know those those sort of type a book type type thing but um but then you know you can you could be more more flexible with with technology you know when i cycled across europe there was a road that wasn't particularly good because of you know the hard i had a hard shoulder there was no hard shoulder i thought there'd be a hard shoulder there was busy traffic i could go straight onto google go to street view look at the road parallel five miles south see if it was any better boom it's better divert go took half an hour off the record because of that decision you know so you know there are certainly huge benefits um with with having technology around uh for sure yeah that, that that's interesting um because that's what i've asked some of my guests before is um the whole premise of if you do it without technology um do you feel more engaged in in the experience or 
does it offer a different type of experience? One of my guests said that he paddled down um, the Grand Canyon, but what he'd done is he'd gone onto YouTube and he, because he had 16 people coming with him on the on this event, he wanted to make sure that he knew all the risks in the big rapids before he went there. And he said it just sort of ruined it for him um, yeah. because there was no adventure in it. Um, yeah. yeah because he knew what was going to happen. Well, obviously not what was going to happen on other bits, but, you know, the big bits, he knew where to go, what line to take and, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's true. That You know, if you, the, the definition of, of adventure is to, to undertake a daring or risky activity. Now, if you over-prepare, you take the daring or risky out of it, so then there's no adventure, of course. But you certainly need an element of, of preparation. Yeah. You know, it's it's that, that balance. You know, you, just, you don't want to be stupid and you know shoot a rapid that's not even that exciting and kill yourself because of a back eddy or a hidden rock you know so yeah. um <clears throat> yeah so but yeah the sort of weirdly the other element of having technology especially now that i'm getting into filmmaking a little bit more mm-hmm. is it really does focus my mind on really absorbing the story and what's happening Mm. when you know you've got to write a book about it or create a film about it because sometimes when you don't have to do those things so if if there was no technology at all you know you may not look for stories and you may miss out because you may not you may just cycle for days and days and days and do nothing Mm. which maybe might be fine it might be good but actually i quite enjoy sort of going oh wow you know what's the story here? And I look up a bit more and I absorb things and smells and sounds and people. And I ask questions more because I want to know what it's like to live in this area. If, if I'm not doing a record, if I'm doing a record, that's a whole different ballgame, yeah. but certainly just going off and, and doing it. It's sort of a travel type thing uh, or, or something where there's no real record, like my national parks marathons, you know, chatting and meeting you and, you know asking questions about the area and what it's like with wild camping and you know littering and <laughs> you know people leaving their tents and a and a credit card with their card number on it you know idiot um so yeah so you do i do find myself probably getting a better experience knowing that i've going to be telling this story in way in some shape or form you know like and, and it happens, you know, when someone puts a camera on you, you all of a sudden you got to like, oh, I've got to be interesting now and I've got to do this and I've got to ask questions. And inevitably, you actually have a better experience than because I, I, I'm, I, I'm an introvert with extrovert tendencies. So I can, I'm very happy on my own. I don't need I don't need sort of people to tell me I'm amazing and I don't need to. That's why I do everything solo, self-supported mostly. Um, so I can have the tendency to just get into my own little head and just ignore everyone and don't talk to me. And like, you know, people say, Oh, why don't you just, you know, if you, why did you camp wild in Britain when you could have just gone on warm showers or couch surf? And I'm like, the idea of that is hell for me. <laughs> the concept of having to sort of sit in a room with people I don't know, you know, answering loads of questions, <laughs> the same questions. I'm like, nah, I'd rather just be by myself with a frog in a field, you know? Um, so so yeah, so that's kind of. I think the technology does help me in that in that way. Make the most of it. 
And so you, you were saying that uh, it, is a, it is a good thing, um, but there are bad tendencies with technology. Um, and get your perspective on it. How, how do you think it's changing the, the modern world? And, and obviously there are really good things about it when, when you like say, you know, change the record for you when you were going across Europe. Um, what's your perspective on how it's changing society? Oh man, I mean, I don't think I, 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 I'm not far enough the uh, the the IQ or EQ ladder on that question, but I'll I'll give you my opinion on it. I think what obviously there's loads of good things which you explain and in access to information, mm-hmm. access to correct information is invaluable. Mm. Quick and easy access to correct information is is probably one of the most important things in the world for for a lot of people who ordinarily wouldn't have it you know like you know if you think of of african tribal schooling you know where it's just a a classroom in the middle of nowhere you know in the 80s it would have been hand-me-down textbooks sent from germany uh that had been translated and which were 15 years old already you know whereas now they've got the internet and they can get answers and they can learn and they can get better so the downside is <clears throat> we are impatient to achieve more, I think. And, and that's all generations, even my generation. You know, we, we, we unfairly judge our success based on, on others. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all do that. Uh, and that's a mammalian thing. We all beat our chests and, you know, low, there's a, a show-off nature to mammals. Mammals have a show-off nature you know the birds grow flamboyant feathers they don't need and do funny dances you know we don't need it but it's just been built and it's a mammalian thing um i think i'm worried that there's going to be a tendency for people to sort of just have a really skewed view of the world which i think most people sort of know and agree with that it's not you know groundbreaking theory there um but i'm worried it'll it'll just leave a society just mildly sort of happy not happy is the wrong word i hate this idea of chasing happiness because i don't think that's that's uh possible at all i think chasing fulfillment is a better thing being fulfilled in life i think trying to be happy the whole time is just stupid uh and I think people will go through life at the best case scenario, just dull, you know, not feeling they want to push themselves because there's always someone who's done something better, always looking down on other people and judging them because their views are wrong um, or different to theirs, you know? And I think it's creating a divide because when I was on the Russell Howard show, he, 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 said it really well he said on the one side you've got people going oh my god the world's doomed someone's going to press a nuclear button and there's going to be world war three and on the other side there's a whole group of people going oh my god it's a tragedy what should we call female fishermen um you know and then but actually and those are the people shouting the 90 percent of us in the middle don't give a shit about either we just want to get on with our lives make friends go on holiday work hard get a paycheck buy a house you know get food on the table um 
but it's it's the others the fringes encroach in our in our beliefs and we almost believe we have to pick a side right it's mm. like who do you like william or harry i'm like well i think they're both kind of cool in their own interesting way oh no no you can't you can't like both of them that's impossible <laughs> you have to choose oh okay well well i, I can't <laughs> what you mean you don't like harry because he's ginger ah sod off <laughs> um you know so but then i think i that's the worry but i think mm. I, I i had an intern and i've used in this intern ed i call him for five years now and he was he was uh, seven, 18, 17, 18 when I started using him. He's now you know twenty two, twenty three, um, and he's really clued up. You know, he knows that the internet is crap a lot of the time. He knows about fake news. He doesn't use social media. He he has an Instagram account which he posts on kind of now, but he doesn't use Twitter. He doesn't use Facebook. Doesn't use TikTok. Um, so you know. I'm hoping there's more people like him who are just getting on with their lives and not not sort of getting bombarded by the, the sort of the negativity of of the world uh, and social media. But um, but I think yeah. So I think I think we're going in the right direction. But I am just worried that we just sort of land up all being just mildly comfortable and just stuck in this sort of like, eh, how's your life? Yeah, it's not as good as. Justin Bieber's <laughs> it's yeah. like well why are you comparing you know um and does he have a good life maybe he probably does uh but you know does he have as good a life as me I don't think so you know yeah. I get to spend a lot of time with my family now I can put food on the table I'm free I don't get hounded by paparazzi every five seconds <laughs> um you know so you know you I think you got to remember there's lots of there's there's more angles to everything really than the one the social media and the internet one yeah that's fantastic um well thank you for that at the end of the podcast um i have a question that i ask all my guests and it is uh, quite an ambiguous one but um time money um is no issue if you could go live off grid for a year anywhere in the world where would you go and what would you do? Live off-grid for a year. Mm. So define off-grid. Are you allowed solar power and things like that? Or do you have to live completely uh, without amenities? So I lived off-grid. I lived, I lived on a boat um, for right. three years on the River Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought an old World War II gunboat, RAF boat. Used to go catch uh rescue spitfires that crashed in the war and i fixed it up and i yeah i lived off grid on a boat on the river seven i had solar power and i used to go and buy my gas bottles and that was technically off grid because i was not connected to the grid however if you want if you're talking about sort of caveman style where you've got no amenities Mm. uh it would it would would need to be somewhere warm really so you could have the whole year to do things outside Mm um i would I would probably do it back in in Zimbabwe in one of the big game parks that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. You, this is not allowed, of course, but I, you know, if it's hypothetical, I would go. Yeah. I kind of like this cons- this idea that there's there's some wild animals out there and <laughs> you know, I'd have to forage and 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 that sort of thing. Um yeah, that would be that would be quite fun. I I also do like the idea of 
going somewhere and sort of creating my own, like building my own house mm-hmm. from scratch, like cutting, felling trees and making a log cabin. And that would be, that would excite me. So I'd probably need to do that somewhere where it's nice all year. Um, I mean, there's so many parts of the UK that are a melee. I'd love to do that in the Lake District, but it's not allowed. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, even in Scotland, it's not, not allowed. So, um, and there's Majis in Scotland, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I'd, 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 I'd live somewhere in the, in the middle of Africa, I think. Oh, fantastic. That was, that was one of the, the best answers I've had so far. Ever since. <laughs> That's why it's I asked like the car- It's a bit like the carpet fitter. Oh, this is, this is the carpet I have in my bedroom, mate. <laughs> <laughs> i gotta go back and listen to all your other podcasts see if you tell everyone else that it's still maybe true though because i could just be better than the last one <laughs> thank you for the compliment thank you for the compliment I'll yeah. take it. <laughs> please don't go back and listen to all of them and then come back and you go oh you lied you said that to everyone <laughs> anyway just cut well, the spit out anyway <laughs> well yeah no, but that's why i ask it in such an ambiguous way because I want people's imaginations to start flowing and, and, and start thinking of um, what, what they could do and where they would go. So, but um, really appreciate that, Sean. Um, some great stuff we spoke about there and thank you very much. Big thank you again for Sean for joining us on the Unplugged Debate. Come follow us on Instagram where you can find out about the team behind the scenes and our new projects that are coming online, like our Unplugged Cards. So until next time, thank you very much for listening.